Welcome to the IB Policy Podcast, where we provide expert commentary and analysis on the legal and regulatory developments impacting the digital advertising industry. My name is Alex Propes, and I'm the Vice President of Public Policy for the IAB, based in Washington, D.C. In today's conversation, I get to sit down with Dr. Rosalind Layton, who is a visiting scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, where she focuses on evidence-based policy for information, communications, and digital technology industries. During our discussion, we'll explore how the coronavirus pandemic is impacting the data privacy debate, the consequences of overly prescriptive privacy laws, and how state privacy laws like CCPA will shape the future of the digital advertising industry. I hope you enjoy. Rosalind, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So around the world, governments are grappling with how to regulate privacy and unforeseen situations like this current health crisis, coronavirus, are putting these privacy frameworks to the test. I know you've written about this topic, and I'd be curious to hear from you what we've learned about our existing privacy models from the current crisis. Well, thank you so much for having me, Alex. I think if we had to boil down the current crisis to one lesson for privacy legislation or privacy policy, it's that this idea of a blanket policy of data minimization is really a bad idea. Uh, that is very much what's animating the general data protection regulation in the EU, GDPR. Um, but it's sort of the notion that we should limit the amount of data in the system. And what has happened now with the crisis, what do we need more than ever is data. Personal data, data about the, uh, the infections, all kinds of data, and we don't have it. Uh, we, and we need it. And if anything, where have we looked for help to address the situation? We've looked to those places that do have data, which are, of course, advertising supporting platforms. And what I would say is, thank goodness we've had those platforms. They have been uh, absolutely indispensable to, to help, uh, not just in uh, some of the applications which we're, we're trying to develop now around public health, but in addition to things like news, uh, health alerts, um, imagine how important it has been for communities that they've been able to go on Facebook, for example, different people in their neighborhoods or family members or friends that they don't have phone numbers in the phone, for example, but they connect through Facebook. All of those things have been available. They have been running. People don't have to pay out of pocket for them, you know, because they're advertising supported. So that has been a, a lifesaver. And the sort of takeaway for policymakers is, especially to the antitrust authorities, is how catastrophic it would be if we tried to diminish the platforms, whether we broke them up or we lessened their capabilities, that would be a really bad idea. That we actually have to recognize the value that advertising supported platforms and services, how much they uh, bring to our economy. Let me say just one other point. The other point about data minimization is that you may be able to collect some data, but it's granularity that also matters. So particularly around location-based services, that when you're getting into things like, well, we want to lift um, restrictions on uninfected zones, if you don't allow the relevant granular data to be collected or processed, you can't actually implement that particular, uh, that particular application. I would say to the credit of so many companies in the European Union, they're trying to work with health authorities, with, all, with whoever they can, even though that they may risk some backlash after this crisis by you know, privacy uh, lawyers who want to go after them, uh, they're actually trying to help as best they can. I think that's a great point. And, and just my observation as I've been reading the headlines about this topic 
is that it seems that there are some viewpoints that strictly look at you know the potential privacy violations and others that focus on the potential benefits. And those two conversations aren't really both being uh, considered uh, at the same time. And so if we're thinking about the, the downside risk of a misuse of data, we're not thinking at the same time about you know, what the real benefits are. And in this case, it's, it's human lives and livelihoods. Absolutely. So in your past writing on privacy, you've talked about different approaches, uh, really fundamental approaches to this topic. And you've categorized this as a fundamentalistic approach versus a pragmatic approach. Could you describe what you mean by these categories? Yes, I think the way to think about this is a privacy fundamentalism versus a privacy pragmatism. And uh, this could be cultural, but this is also embedded in the various laws if we look at a European approach versus a, uh, an American approach. On the one hand, a privacy fundamentalist approach looks at privacy as a fundamental human right, where the individual has a right to control the personal information about them. And so this is the idea that as human beings, we all have equal rights and anything that I have, you have no more rights than I, and therefore we all have to have the same universal set of bright line rules to all the information about them. Now that assumes a control of the information. It sets up a highly legalistic regime where you need a specialized government agency to enforce their requirements. And uh, it, it creates a, an adversarial relationship. Now, on the other hand, you have what is uh, the U.S. approach would be called privacy pragmatism, which basically says, why don't we create rules around the information that people care about and what is the most sensitive or what is um, uh, actually damaging if it, if it gets into the public or what have you. That's why the U.S. has almost two dozen sector-specific sets of privacy law, and this has developed over 220 years. It is quite specific. And the value of this can actually be seen if we look at the attempts by European data protection authorities to enforce GDPR, they're actually looking at the specific areas where US already has laws. So that would be health, financial information, employment information, and child privacy information. US has already very highly specific, well-developed, well-tested rules to govern these domains. And uh, so, so that is just sort of the, the value of the pragmatism. Additionally, what I'd say is that if, when it comes to internet privacy, if you will, the approach that we've taken to date over the last 20 years is we have the Federal Trade Commission, which works through Section 5 of the FTC Act. This is what protects consumers, consumers from unfair and deceptive practices. So the attorneys general from all the 50 states, they work with the FTC, and they have developed over time, which is a common law of privacy, a sort of case-by-case -case approach to address problems as they arise. You need to look at the facts, you need to look at the harm in the situation, and then you take the appropriate steps. Uh, and it has been shown to work. And for those you know, who are concerned about the, you know, can you actually get judgments? Well, you can say the FTC last year put a $5 billion fine on Facebook for the Cambridge Analytica scandal. That was made without any new privacy laws in place. It was put together relatively quickly by the Federal Trade Commission. And what it um, shows is that that fine is 20 times higher than could have ever been achieved in the European Union. And it hasn't been challenged by Facebook. So the, the point is just that this notion somehow that there's not privacy law in the US, that's absolutely untrue. The US has a privacy law tradition of 
over 200 years. It is highly sector specific with, um, with regulators already in place for the specific areas. It has a long running track record of case law. And then for new things that emerge, which they always will, we have a very flexible arrangement through the Federal Trade Commission and their generalized capability to look at unfair and deceptive acts against consumers. And they work with the 50 states to address things as they come. It's a very different approach than just saying, as the Europeans do, we're going to control every use of data from the beginning and assuming that it's all equal. You know, one argument we hear in favor of this more prescriptive approach is that it will actually promote consumer trust in ways that maybe a more flexible approach wouldn't because you do have these bright lines and that can actually drive more Internet use and more economic activity. So it's good for business. Do you think there's evidence to support these laws uh, and this this type of, of privacy uh, law? Well, what, you know, I, I've heard that before, that consumers will be better off. I mean, the interesting thing, we can look at over 20 years of data from the Eurostat um, uh, public opinion survey, which is done in the European Union. And they have been asking a question, and they ask it in various ways about how do you trust the online experience and that score has never been lower than since the GDPR took place. Hmm. Now, to me, I find it is comical on one level because when the policymakers told us everything would be great and people have less trust online. Now, is it because consumers are more, um, they're more aware and that they're more distrusting because they're aware that perhaps that's one example? But the other point is uh, what is missing from the whole approach I would say in both US and the EU, is a notion of consumer education. And that is a, an important part of public policy where people would actually go through a set of, of skills training. They could do this online on the platforms that they use where they actually begin to understand what are the tools they're using, how their information is, is used and processed, and that they can gain a set of confidence and uh, of trust in the services that they use. Now, that is a way to improve the outcome, uh, but that's very different than saying there's one regulator in charge of everything and they're going to enforce it, and that actually you take the consumer out of the equation. So I think that that is part of the key that's missing here. Um, but I, the bigger point, Alex, is that that there's a diminishing, I'm going to use an economist term, there's diminishing returns to scale here when we talk about the, the big privacy, meaning that this regulatory approach where the data protection authority is assumed to know everything and is assumed to know what's right and wrong, that doesn't scale because our digital world is vast and consumers have very different tastes. So it's very difficult for a person sitting in a regulatory office to know what's better for you than you to know yourself. And so, so that's part of the reason. And of course, it costs a lot of money to do any kind of regulatory enforcement. The, uh, the European data protection authorities, they're very understaffed. Uh, there has been very little enforcement of the rules and even more, uh, you see very few uh, companies complying. So less than half of all the European companies who are complicable, less than half comply because it's just too expensive for them. And then moreover, what I think is even more sad about it is that small and medium sized companies, they don't grow or digitize. There are so many rules now to trying to do an online business in the European Union that they just say, we're not going to bother. It's, it's too much risk. I don't understand. Can't figure it out. Um, I can't 
you know, all these other things. And it's ironic because the policy, at least in stated, to try to improve the, the situation. Small, medium-sized, I'm sorry, medium to large-sized companies, yes, they're still there. They've spent a heck of a lot of money, but it hasn't translated into more uh, consumer trust or confidence. And I think the worst part is it has harmed the small and medium-sized companies, especially in the ad tech domain, who are creating competition and creating diversification in the advertising industry. I think that's a great point. And we've done a lot of education at IB to, to demonstrate how important the small and medium-sized businesses are to the internet ecosystem. It's not always obvious. Um, there might be a smaller set of apps and websites that you're regular, regularly visiting, but behind those uh, are, are millions of small businesses and news publications and blogs uh, that are providing the actual content that you're consuming. Um, so I think that's an important point. And I know in Europe, you've written about how we've seen a real decrease in small publishers, especially American businesses that haven't been able to, to stay in market. It's a very good point. I mean, I, I'm American, but I've lived in, you know, I've lived abroad for more than 10 years. And when the GDPR took place right away, the amount of content I could consume from the U.S., it just dropped overnight. I mean, overnight, about a thousand media outlets from the U.S. vanished from the European market. And uh, it's quite chilling, um, especially for any people who appreciate the First Amendment. It's, you know, of course, that's not part of the European Union per se, but the point is that many observers, uh, my colleague at AEI, Dan Lyons, he's written about this, is that the GDPR is a sort of trade barrier in the sense that the goal was to get the small and medium-sized American firms out of the market, long tail, if you will, so that just the your small European startups would have an easier time to go at it. Well, maybe that was a good idea on some level, but the problem is the GDPR is even so tough for them that the venture capital for their um, that's available for them has decreased by about 30%. So that is really has been a double whammy. So not only there's less competition in the ad tech sphere in the European Union, but the ability to raise capital has been diminished. Now, what I would say is, U.S. is not immune to this because we can look at California's privacy, you know, which is now it's it's not in effect, but it's coming into effect. I think it's worse than GDPR. I mean, the GDPR has only 45 requirements that you have to do if you're a, a business collecting data. The California law has 77. So it's even worse. It's even more um, uh, 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 expensive, if you will, for a small and medium sized business. Mm hmm. So we're not immune from from a bit of a balkanization where companies may have to decide where they can and can't afford to do business based on these privacy laws within the U.S. Yes. Well, this is one of the challenges, I think, that is, is bringing up the California law does bring up constitutional issues around interstate commerce. But if you can look at the um, uh, California Department of Justice, which ostensibly would be overseeing this, they prepared a cost benefit analysis for the CCPA. And their estimation is that it's going to cost $55 billion to implement, which is about 2% of the entire economy of California, and then another $16 billion in the coming decade. And they propose a modest consumer benefit of $5 billion. Well, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure out that we're getting an 11 to 1 negative return on our privacy investment. So it will cost us $55 billion to comply with the CCPA. 
consumers are only supposed to benefit about $5 billion. So as a policy researcher like myself, I would say, well, there's a lot of things I could do with $55 billion, or the companies <laughs> themselves could think about a lot of innovative ways. They could pay their workers more, they could invest in new technologies, they could try new markets. But actually, what the California law really represents is a wealth transfer from the companies themselves to the privacy bar. And that is largely the group of stakeholders who has pushed for the California rules. Um, it was driven by a billionaire turned privacy activist, Alistair McTaggart, who himself made his billions by using personal data platforms to sell real estate. So, you know, he now um, funded this measure on the ballot. California sort of stuck with it for the moment, but it's essentially showing that um, uh, it's an awful lot of money that falls hardest on small and medium-sized businesses in California. 99% of the companies in California have less than 500 employees. And in this climate, I honestly don't think they're going to have a million dollars to spend to secure their website, not even $100,000. If you know anything about advertising, the, most advertisers, they have very small budgets, right? Their whole mm -hmm. budget for advertising for the year may be $100,000, let alone the cost to put up a new website, to change the systems, to pay privacy lawyers. So most of the fees to do the CCPA, they you have to hire a privacy lawyer to come in and overview your, you know, your website. You know, are you in compliance? Maybe you have to buy some upgraded software and so on. But that doesn't appreciably improve your the products you sell. It doesn't make you more competitive and it doesn't necessarily serve your customers. So, so I actually think there's going to be a reckoning with California. Um, there are some, I think, some positive things in the works, but we have really come to, we now, because of this crisis, we're st really staring in the face, you know, what are things worth? Do we want to pay the nurses? Um, do we want to pay the teachers? Or do we want to pay the privacy lawyers? I mean, that's the kind of questions that we're dealing with. And when you consider that the investment in compliance with CCPA may only last for a year, two years, now that there are new proposals being put forward in California and this constantly changing standard uh, on some of the, the bright line rules, um, they, they become less and less bright as you look at uh, years in the future. Well, and I think, you know, also for the, um, you know, in an economic boom, you can you can. I think some politicians can be can afford to sort of be aspirational and say a lot of things without actually having to run the numbers. But when their constituents have to start paying these kind of fees, I think it's going to be very hard for them to justify. Uh, but what we've sort of seen that the discourse amongst the state legislatures has really changed. It's come back to reality that sort of says, all right, well, we're not going to get, you know, there's not going to be this runaway private right of action because that has been the hope of the privacy bar that, you know, if you make this very complex privacy regulation, you can go after companies if they forget to put the 800 number on their website. I mean, everything under the sun and they're gonna make a lot of money. And now the legislators realize that's not a good idea that, you know, that they should be able to create this new source of revenue for themselves. Um, but the other hand, it doesn't mean there's no, let's say standards or expectations or no controls whatsoever. So. I think the conversation is much more, um, uh, let's say, rec rec recognizing that there are costs to these. But I would also say, uh, you know, I'm actually part of a process where we're trying to help resolve 
these challenges. Uh, in fact, there are 800 different privacy laws amongst the 50 states in the U.S. today. It's pretty staggering to consider. Hmm. Um, we have something called the Uniform Law Commission. It is a nonprofit organization that's been around since 1892, and they created something that Americans use every day, which is called the Uniform Commercial Code. That is the harmonization of the various state laws about commercial transactions. It's the guidelines that smooth um, interstate commerce so that every time you have a transaction, there's not a lawsuit. There's actually a kind of uh, a, a lubricant, if you will, to help all of that go on. And it's uh, that is what the Uniform Law Commission does. So presently, I, I'm an observer of the, com there's 350 commissioners. There are many observers. I'm an observer amongst many others where we are trying to inform the commissioners with the various sets of perspectives and data and analyses and alternatives. And then within a year, we'll develop um, a model code, if you will, a sort of set that tries to synthesize all the approaches to find a happy medium to things and then offer state legislatures, a, if they are to ad adopt a set of state privacy rules, that they can, that they would have a, um, a model code, if you will. And of course, this will be, uh, you know, Congress can learn from that as well. And that is definitely necessary because the other part, if you don't do anything, I mean, there will be people who are going to sue Cal the state of California for violating the First Amendment, the Tenth Amendment, Fifth Amendment, you know, whatever. I mean, that's also another challenge for them. So this is the kind of, there's a lot going on there. And I, I think it's important because the Internet is a huge part of the American economy. Um, American internet commerce is 30% of the world's total. It's, it's staggering, extremely important, and that you should just sort of now all of a sudden adopt a standard that came from this, you know, active billionaire activists. It's not really founded in the, you know, the actual evidence-based approach to doing things. And there are, we have actually established approaches, voluntary consent standards. We have a whole track record over two decades with the Federal Trade Commission working with the states. Um, there's a lot of other things that can properly inform the approach to privacy legislation. And so that's, we're very encouraged by that initiative and, and have also weighed in uh, within the Uniform Law Commission. And so I think that's that's a great approach since the number one concern we certainly hear from our members who are on the ground and, and trying to survive in this current economic environment uh, is to have more uniformity across the board, avoid a patchwork that just magnifies their compliance costs dramatically. Is a federal preemptive law the long-term goal, what we should be aiming for? It's a great question. I think, you know, it, it's a, you know, if it could be crafted, I think that would save a lot of, of headaches at certainly at the state level. Um, I maybe I had more optimism before, but now I think Congress is very much focused on getting through the crisis. And you know, this law altogether has um, has been deprioritized, if you will, understandably. But I would also say, um, just thinking, it, it has been perhaps a silver lining is it's actually forced. We've had cases where I think the actual advertising industry in how they facilitate everything online, how extremely important and valuable that is, they've ha they're having a chance to prove to America, to society, to everyone, their value and all of the tremendous value that they bring. So I think that, you know, if and when Congress picks it up again, they should have a much uh, a greater appreciation for the role of advertising. I think it is extremely 
When you look at the history of advertising, it goes back to Benjamin Franklin in the United States. It goes to our founding. It's at the very core of free speech. It's at the very core of the, you know, of, of so much of the development of America, how it evolved, and also going forward, all of the new services that we create in every successive network. I mean, we want to now deliver 5G, right? That we want to have Internet of Things. Um, do we expect the consumers themselves to pay for every new application and use? Are they going to have to pay every single time? Well, we would want to have advertising to be there because it's advertising which has fueled every new generation of communications information technology. It's how we got television, right? We didn't have to have like a BBC the way they did in, in the European Union or in Europe at that time, where you, you know, still in Europe today, you have to pay a fee to your public broadcaster in every country. If you don't pay the fee, you go to jail. And that is added to the price of your broadband subscription. So the part about what advertising does is it lowers the cost for people to adopt new devices. It helps them try new applications, new services without having an out-of-pocket expense. And when you're dealing with internet industries, it's in the attention market, if you will, the fact that consumers don't have to take money out of their pocket to do things is, is really a leveler, if you will. And, and that's why I'm a huge advocate for what I call, you know, pricing flexibility, that we should be, it's, we don't have enough advertising in the marketplace. In fact, I think there are so many small, medium-sized firms who could take advantage of innovative types of marketing that just, that don't know about it. They haven't had the economies of scale. And if we adopt like the California types rules, we will disenfranchise the small and medium-sized firms who could really benefit from offering their new services. I, I certainly couldn't agree more. Um, what we've you know, found is that in the last few months through our own research, that usage of ad-supported services has skyrocketed. News consumption is up well over 50%. Uh, apps, games, education content across the board has gone up. Uh, and it hasn't cost consumers necessarily anything uh, unless they chose to to find new subscriptions. Um, and that's thanks to advertising. Uh, so there there are real benefits, and I do hope that that's recognized as we continue this this ongoing privacy discussion. Um, you know one of the tangible, uh, I guess consumer facing results of privacy laws is the idea of an opt-in uh, or an opt-out is, you know, we've talked a lot within IAB and in our conversations with lawmakers about, you know, where you set these standards and how you define personal information is absolutely critical. Um, can you talk a bit about, you know, these definitions and the role that those play in this debate? Sure. Well, I um, so I actually think there's a there's an opportunity here to salvage, how would you say salvage the CCPA when we look at definitions? Because the, the problem, of course, is this kind of, I don't know what you call it, a, a sort of uh, the, the, the tyranny of the opt-in, opt-out debate question where it assumes <laughs> that every single collector of data in California is going to be the same. You know, so let's say me as an academic, I collect a survey online and I have the same designs as, you know, as Google Maps. I mean, it, it's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. So the way I actually think to, to resolve that is to have a two-tier definition. And this was, in fact, the approach taken in the um, UCC, the Uniform Commercial Code. So a very pragmatic answer 
is to say that we have um, one narrow definition, very structured, for the sets of in individual information that would go under what's called FIPS, the Fair Information Practice Principles. That would be very narrow definition for very specific things that are personal information. And then a broader definition for everything else that, um, uh, that is, is maybe not so sensitive. And so the, the, the structured definition was where we apply the high standard. And then where we have the broad standard, we use voluntary consensus standard. And this is a kind of set of, um, it's, it's used actually very much today with a child privacy, where the, let's say those uh, service providers who would work with children, they sit, they, they create a multi-stakeholder group, they work with the Federal Trade Commission, and together they say, look, we all want to maximize privacy for children, here are the ways that we do it. And we are going to work together to set, a, set up a voluntary standards we all agree to, and um, you know, it isn't the law that you have to do it, but in general, 99.9% .9 of the firms agree. And we have this kind of mode for the makers of carpets and curtains and, you know, paints and all a whole across the board because it works. Because it doesn't scale that every single thing in our economy has to be decided by the regulator or someone in Washington, that the actual information about what's valuable is much closer to the producer and the consumers themselves. So, a two-tier definition is would be a much better way to go than a very strict opt-in, opt-out kind of a, a kind of um, um, a framework. And what I'd say is it maps much better to the existing rules that we have uh, on the books, where we have a set of sectoral-specific laws for specific sensitive areas, and we have <clears throat> what you would call the FTC Act for unfair and deceptive practices. All that stuff that we can't name and can't know but as it emerges, we deal with it on a case-by-case -case basis. And the consensus part, the voluntary consensus standards, that's where the individual, let's say, advertisers of working in one domain would work together, and then those in another, and what have you. And so you'd have all kinds of groups simultaneously working, figuring out what makes sense. The, the, uh, the, the uh, policymakers can be involved as well. It's actually worked quite well in the area of children's um, in the area of uh, children's privacy. And what I would further propose is a safe harbor. So where you could actually give some um, confidence to the, uh, to the business to say, look, if you are working in this domain, you've tried to do the things right, we're gonna give you a safe harbor to operate. That we're gonna assume that you're doing the right thing unless the, unless the sort of the data proves otherwise. You know, and that is important because if you wanna invest in your business and grow your business, you don't want to say, oh my goodness, I forgot section 3.8.B75, you know, clause 57, and now I'm out of business because the California Department of Justice said so. I mean, that's the sort of the thing that we're dealing with. And the the part of America's is about is enterprise and trying new things and having the permissionless innovation to move forward. Um, that ability, that pragmatism is what underlies our entire economy and our entire approach. We have evolved the spaces to protect where we are concerned about things and they have evolved over time. But we can't assume that every single internet experience is going to be the same, that every person wants the same. And that is what the approach Europe has taken. That's why there are no, you know, we don't really use many European services in the US. That's why they've never developed a major internet sector because they took a fundamentalist control approach. 
That makes makes perfect sense. And on the point about definitions, you know, one of the challenges that many of our companies are facing is that they're being asked to fulfill, whether it be access or deletion requests, uh, on data that is not tied within their systems to an individual. And so, how do they go about fulfilling these new obligations that they have? It, it creates real challenges when you when you don't define these definitions properly. Oh, and I would just add uh, that, that that's creating this whole new field of cybersecurity risk because in the past they didn't have to create those, they didn't have to maintain those new data sets. Now they do. If you are a hacker, you are going to love the CCPA. If you're sitting in the Chinese government and the PLA3, one of these government hackers for the Chinese, oh man, they are so excited by how stupid Americans can be to say, oh, now let's please centralize all this personal information in one place. And, you know, we've already seen how hackers have, um, you know, even, you know, just on the weekend and figured out, okay, I'm going to find, I can show you how I work around this new, you know, so-called gold standard of privacy law. It's, it's such a, um, again, as we know, this well-intentioned idea sounding so good on the surface, but can truly be so destructive and so misguided. And I would just say, this is part of the reason why I like policymakers to take a scientific approach. Don't adopt something, test it or study or try something in a small way, right? You know, actually have a small experiment rather than say, oh, let's just do everything opt in, opt out. You know, you can actually look at data. There's very interesting studies done about these things. So, so that's the sort of where the evidence-based approach is so much more helpful for a society as opposed to a emotional sort of fundamentalist, you know, everything is a human rights approach. Because you act, even in the case we're dealing now in a major human rights crisis, you can say, but we need science to fulfill, we need science to solve the problem, right? To make the vaccines, to do these necessary things. So this is where we have to have, we have to inform our policymaking with the necessary information. We have to go through the necessary testing. We have to go through the necessary discussions as opposed to simply saying, well, I'm more high-minded than you because I'm considering a human right end of discussion, right? We'll actually be limiting the human rights effect because people are not able to access valuable services because they're too expensive, they're not developed, they don't provide the proper information. I think that need for an experimental approach to this this really relatively new uh, area, new way of conceptualizing privacy uh, is an argument for the codes of conduct and safe harbors that you mentioned, where uh, industry and others can really start to quickly adapt best practices and evolve those quickly over time. I know within the advertising industry, we've been a supporting member of of different self-regulatory and regulatory, co-regulatory approaches um, that have been able to adapt, you know, year over year or month by month, um, as opposed to, uh, uh, you know, the legislative or regulatory process, which, which can certainly take much longer. Absolutely. And what's so valuable about that voluntary consensus standards process is you create information. It's a wonderful way for a regulator to study. I mean, what does a regulator do when they go, they have to find out the information, they don't have it. So they will, of course, will typically look at what is the industry doing. So, so that is why I think it's a very constructive, it's a um, very positive, it's a um, very helpful way to go forward as, a, as assume that there's one answer to everything in all situations. 
Well, our guest today has been Dr. Rosalind Layton. Rosalind, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate the conversation. My pleasure.